Well, I uh, actually grew up in East Hartford, um, native of East Hartford, but uh, I live with my family now in Hebron, Connecticut, so oh, Eastern yeah. Connecticut, uh, and actually we just came up here directly from uh, from Rocky Hill. Okay, Hebron has that old synagogue there that they redid. That's right. right the kind of Amston. Right, is Amston part of Hebron or right now? Yes, it is. No, it's part of, uh, it's a village of Hebron along with Gilead. And so a lot of the synagogues got out of business in that part of the state, but that one went back in, and they, it's a historic one there. It's historic. It's uh, it's actually right next to uh, our our veterans memorial. So uh, okay. each Memorial Day and each Veterans Day, uh, we we get to be right there. And uh, when we're honoring our veterans, we're right next to the synagogue as well. So Veterans Day, uh, Sean Connolly, you are a veteran, right? I am. I'm an Army veteran. Uh, I spent uh, about seven years on active duty in the Army, and I continue to serve in the Army Reserve today for the last twelve plus years. Uh, recently, actually graduated from the Army War College uh, this past summer. And you also are just recently resigned to run for office as the state commissioner of veteran affairs. I did. I stepped mm-hmm. down uh, as commissioner. I was commissioner for uh, about two and a half years, uh, appointed in 2015. I, I got to tell you, it was an extraordinary uh, opportunity, uh, extraordinarily rewarding for, for, for me to serve. We have over 200,000 veterans here in Connecticut of all eras going back to uh, to World War II. So a really, uh, a really special, uh, a really uh, service-oriented and, and, and humble uh, position that uh, I was honored. You know, 200,000. Now, I guess they're not all Democrats, because that's, that's, uh, that's actually a constituency. Because, I mean, you're running in a pack, Sean. We were arguing about this this morning at NPR. Is it 25 people or 30 who are running for governor? <laughs> I mean, you guys are all got to have something that makes you different. Do you think having your background in veteran affairs actually makes you a different candidate? Is this part of why you want to be governor? Is that something to do with why you'd be someone we should be considering for a vote? Absolutely. It's a, it's a piece of it. You know, I, I am unique among the, I think it's 11 or so candidates on the Democratic uh, field. I'm unique in that I bring uh, three different tiers of experience that uh, all the other candidates don't necessarily have, at least don't have it in a combined fashion. And that one is military, my military experience, serving uh, as an officer over the last 19 plus years, currently a lieutenant colonel. Second, uh, my corporate experience. I, I came back home to Connecticut and worked at Pratt & Whitney ultimately becoming the global ethics and compliance officer at a company where my grandfather was once the groundskeeper. And then the third piece is, uh, as commissioner of Veterans Affairs, running a state agency, uh, doing it with less resources, a smaller budget, but doing it uh, with collaboration and working with our veterans around the state, working with our veteran service organization leaders uh, from around the state. And so I think it is a, a key piece. And What is it about knowing about veterans issues that is relevant to being the governor? What's well, really going to come down to me, for me, a style, a style of leadership. And uh, I've often uh, talked around the state about how companies, how, how organizations should bring on uh, veterans to serve. And that's because mm. veterans are smart. They're team-oriented. They're dedicated. They're uh, comfortable in changing and dynamic environments. They make great members of, of any team, great employees, but also great entrepreneurs. And is there so, a problem with veterans the way there is with uh, people coming out of prison in terms of any barriers to being employed? Sure, sure. There are. What bar- are those barriers? If you're if you come back from war, it's harder to get a job. Well, it, it can be. Part of it is communication. Part of it is educating, educating uh, potential employers for uh, for what for the value that that veterans bring to the table, no matter what service. Uh, but is there a bias? I mean, I've never met an employer who said, "Yeah, I don't want that person." They served in the army. For those who don't know, I think they just need that education on what the value that that, that veterans. So you bring say it's value added. Absolutely, the kind of skills you learn. Now let's talk about what you learned. So you had seven years in active duty. What did you do in those seven years, Sean? So, so I, I went on active duty in January of 2000. I had done ROTC in college, went to Bryant in Rhode Island, uh, was commissioned an officer, went to law school first, and then went on active duty as a judge advocate. Uh, so I was a first lieutenant, 
uh, down at Fort Campbell, Kentucky uh, with the 101st Airborne Division. I was doing a number of different things. I was a legal assistance attorney first for soldiers and their families. I ultimately became a, a prosecutor and a brigade legal advisor for two brigades, and I deployed with one of those brigades to Iraq in 2003. Uh, you know, Coming back from uh, Iraq, I was, I was selected to go serve in the Pentagon uh, out of the office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, helping set up the, uh, the the military commissions, the trials by military commissions for the detainees uh, down in Guantanamo Bay. Well, this is interesting. And uh, yeah, ultimately... Uh, so to begin with, so early on in your legal career in the Army, so basically you were an, a legal officer in the Army. That's right, that's right. So you had the perspective of both being a legal aid attorney and a prosecutor. Two very different jobs, two very su- different sides of criminal justice system. Let me just, that when we'll get back to military service, how does that affect what you see happening in our legal system today in Connecticut. Do you, I mean, legal aid offices are way overburdened. That's not a new story. There is no right to a speedy trial in Connecticut. Prosecutors, in my experience, are also overburdened. They're often beholden to what they get from the police and have a lot of times taken a long time to admit when a mistake was made. Do you see any changes in that that you could make or that you can help make as a governor? I think certainly we, we need to continue. You, you talked about barriers before. We need to continue... Uh, being able to transition those who have gone through the the justice system here in Connecticut onto the best path for a best life, not only for themselves but for for society. And so, continuing things uh, like uh, you know, Commissioner Scott Semple has done at the Department of Correction for for veterans, those veterans who are currently inmates at the Department of Correction, being able to set up a way for them to transition to identify the barriers and remove the barriers for achieving them from a housing standpoint, from uh, getting a job standpoint, and, and from uh, getting back onto the path to their best life. We gotta, we've got to continue those second uh, chances. What about the way the courts work? What about either the way the prosecutor's office work or the public defenders in Connecticut? Have you noticed anything coming back stateside that needs changing? You know, certainly... Uh, Nothing specific, but 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 kind of a reasonableness standard. It's kind of it was kind of interesting. My wife uh, Carol, we met in law school, and when I was down at Fort Campbell serving as a prosecutor in the army, she actually came down to, to, to Kentucky and 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 was a public advocate, basically a public defender in in Kentucky. So oh. we always joked it was an interesting uh, dinner conversations, but. Uh, really, what what it comes down to is 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 being reasonable um, uh, with with uh, you know thinking about what the future holds for for the people that you're going to prosecute. Obviously, there there are crimes, and you got you got to prosecute uh, prosecute crimes. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, coming down to a reasonableness standard, I think. Tell me about a case you way. took on as a legal defender, public defender in the army. What's a case you'll never forget? As a prosecutor, either. Yeah, was I, well, I, I was a prosecutor. Carol was a, a public defender. But I thought you uh, said you started out as public defender. Well, legal aid is legal aid. Is, legal yeah. aid is a little different. Legal assistance is That's where true. we're helping our soldiers. You know, from a standpoint of of, of uh, landlord tenant issues of, of, oh, okay. of get consumer protection well, issues yeah. from wills and powers right, so of attorney. Those are those are governor jobs. Uh, I mean, those are governor issues. Yeah, yeah. So w- tell me about a case you'll never forget prosecuting in the army. You know, we had uh, we had a case where on on post on a military installation, we had a soldier who was working on the internet and talking to uh, to a young girl, and ultimately um, lured her lured her to uh, the post exchange on, on the base. Mm. Little did he know uh, that the 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 child's mother was involved in the in the computer and was kind of uh, running running it uh, herself and so ultimately he ended up being at the at the post exchange but so did the military police and it was it, it was it was a success in that we were able to uh, cut that off at the knees uh, and, and protect uh, protect that child and also protect uh, the the army uh, going forward 
Uh, what do you mean about that in the army? Well, we, we prosecuted uh, him uh, for federal crimes and, uh, you know, he was ultimately discharged. And why is that the case you remember? Why is that the one that stands out? You know, I, when, when, it, when any, any case that's going to involve young people, uh, it really for me is going to stand out. Of course, you want to protect uh, our, our children. I have two boys right now, Sean and Brennan. They're 11 and 8 years old, and you always kind of have that uh, protectionary uh, mechanism in place. And so that, yeah. one, that one stood out to me. The kind of thing, it was like right articles like that, you go home and you hug your kids. Yeah, Right, right. So then you, know, you, you said in passing, you just kind of dropped it, that you were at the Pentagon dealing with the military legal response to the detainees at Guantanamo. So what was your role there? Yeah, I was I was still a young captain, and uh, in the Pentagon, even colonels today are are, are getting coffee. Um, but I, it, it was an amazing experience, one to be so young, to be a captain, to be in the outer ring of the Pentagon, the E ring, uh, working out of the Secretary of Defense's office on some some really uh, innovative, uh, innovative and, and new law, uh, and it was really implementing something that hadn't been done since you know really going back to to World War II, and that's trials by military commission. Uh, so it was it was doing a lot of research. It was doing a lot of writing. It was actually writing things that uh, that uh, senior folks would review and sign, even as a as a young captain. And so I worked with some great people. One of my best mentors was uh, was an Air Force general who I got to sit as far as uh, basically the distance that you are you and I are right now, um, and really just learn a lot uh, of the experience. So what did you conclude? You weren't the policymaker. How do you feel about what we're doing in Guantanamo? Should we be putting people in U.S. trials here on the mainland, or should we be doing special military tribunals there? Is that well, working? Does military justice work? Well, it's, it's been too slow. Um, you know, it's, it's been too slow. I think, I think there is a case to be made that uh, we have a criminal justice system, but we also have to remember that uh, as a nation uh, engaged in, in combat operations, um, there is a difference, and uh, there is a difference uh, from, from when it comes to a prosecutory standpoint. Uh, I, I believe in the military justice system. Sure, there are, are ways that we can improve, and, and they've made some improvements just over the last few years. Uh, but from a standpoint of uh, of a panel of of the of the due process that that a soldier gets, it's it's pretty strong. So, just to summarize, about in terms of how your military experience and your veterans' experience might shape you as a governor, you're saying that there are lessons learned uniquely in the military about teamwork, I guess, and discipline that you can bring to that. Understanding issues of the 200,000 veterans who live in the state and what they need and an attention to reentry, both for veterans in general, letting employers know about the special talents they bring, as well as special challenges, housing and others facing veterans who are in the criminal justice system are going to be released. Anything we're missing there? No, no, I think that's right. I mean, from the military standpoint, and it's not just practicing law as a lawyer. It's also being being a leader. I mentioned I'm a lieutenant colonel now in the Army Reserve. I graduated from the Senior Service College just this summer. Uh, I'm that- sorry, which reserve is that? The, the senior service college, the U.S. Army War College, I graduated uh-huh. this summer with a master's in strategic studies. It's really a college set aside for up-and-coming uh, senior leaders in, in the military. Uh, and, and we studied national security, uh, critical issues uh, around the world. You know, we, we worked with speakers uh, like four-star generals, like ambassadors from around the country, uh, around the world, uh, like uh, the, the former CIA director coming to, uh, to talk to us. And so it was really a unique perspective to work with other lieutenant colonels, other colonels who have uh, led uh, soldiers, led brigades, and uh, really looking at a strategic leadership standpoint. So a lot of people who are concerned about the Donald Trump presidency had this hope for a while. All these liberals in America were rooting for generals. They're saying, you know, Trump hired these military people like John Kelly in the White House, and they were going to be the grown-ups babysitting the president. They're going to bring order to the chaos. Now people aren't so sure in terms of how we're learning about John Kelly. 
Any lessons you take from that about limits of military perspective or training in civilian government roles, or is it just sui generis? It's just basically what we're seeing in that situation is different. Well, it, it depends what role they're currently playing, right? So if someone's still wearing the uh, the uniform, um, you are subject to uh, to the chain of command in a way that you're not as a civilian. Uh, obviously, you you have to answer to uh, to your boss uh, either way, um, but the perspectives that you learn can certainly translate in how in how you how you act. And I guess I others. have a bias, which is that if there's a general in the White House and they're deciding whether to blow up a country, I feel better if there's a general there because they're actually often more reluctant to go into unwise military adventures because they know what's involved. I have this bias that if you come out of the military, you are going to be less egotistical, perhaps, and more thinking about order and rank and process. But I don't know if we're totally seeing that with Kelly or not. No, I, I mean, uh, you know, I think that's fair, a fair observation. I, I like to, uh, there, there's one particular general uh, that, I, that I look at, and I look at his, his tweets, and, and that's General Retired uh, Marty Dempsey. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, and he really gets down to leadership and what leadership is all about. And he has some key messages, and he calls them radical inclusion. And to me, that means you have to bring in all the perspectives. You have to bring in all the stakeholders. As a leader, my, my style of leadership is to be a collaborative, results-driven leader. And I want, to, I want someone who can come in and potentially change my mind. Uh, you know, th- those are the kinds of people that you want on your staff so mm-hmm. that you know you get to the, uh, the best result, the best resolution for, for, in our case, the people of Connecticut. And Sean Connolly is the person we have in the WNHH studio here on Dateline New Haven at your home for Community Radio at 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Sean is running for governor as a Democrat. Is it exploratory or you have an official campaign committee? It's official. I right. uh, I jumped so in. You're as, not faking. You're I'm Ryan. not faking anymore. I, yes. I made that decision uh, in October. I launched an exploratory committee, and we did that for about three months. And on January 9th, I declared my candidacy. And uh, at the same time, uh, when I declared my candidacy, I also released my economic plan. And I did that because it's so important. I've been talking about since exploratory days that my first, second, third priorities are the state's economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that's really got to be the unifying theme for us, the focus for us so that we can get our state back on track. All right. And Jonathan Rivera writes in via Facebook. Welcome to New Haven, Sean. All right. Thank you for writing in, Jonathan. So tell me about this economic plan. What are the highlights? What, what, what are you going to do as governor to jumpstart our economy, the big uh, elf in the room here in this race? Absolutely. And thanks, Jonathan, for, uh, for saying hello. Uh, first is putting the laser focus on our state's economy that it deserves. You know, I here in Connecticut, uh, it's winter time, and during the winter we have snowstorms. And when we do, when we have a major snowstorm, our state leaders gather together in the Armory in Hartford at the Operations Center to see our state through the storm. And we we need that same level of focus on on our economy with an economic operations center. And when I say an economic operations center, I mean Democrats, but also Republicans, also business and industry, and also labor at the table to talk about, yes, our two- to three-year plan, but we need that long-term 10- to 15-year plan to launch our state forward. I talk about uh, our our Department of uh, Economic and Community Development and jolting the system there. You know, we have some great people uh, working there. They do some good things, but we also need to modernize it, make it more flexible. Uh, As I travel the state uh, on my jobs tour uh, and talking to business leaders, uh, some find it not as flexible as it it could be and not as helpful. Can you give me some examples? What does that mean? Are you applying for a permit or if you need a decision about wetlands? What what is it? What what do you want to modernize and how are you going to make it more flexible? Really, what, what... what they don't uh, get, I think, is inflexibility is if they have a business idea, if they have a, a, an idea to start a business or to grow a business, a- and there may be some kinds of grants available or loans available, it's just too hard. It's too bureaucratic. It's too much red tape, and they would walk in, 
and and it wouldn't be it, it would be too hard and so they and obviously out. everybody's against red tape everyone's against bureaucracy everyone's also for garnering state dollars and not throwing money around that's not accountable what what are they doing that's creating red tape and bureaucracy that doesn't need to be done too many too many layers too many uh too many steps that you have to jump through uh where it becomes just too hard so that business leaders who operate at the speed of business not at the speed of slow government uh, will just not take advantage of it because it's not it's not helpful. So you uh, think there are people who would be creating jobs and growing businesses in Connecticut if it was just easier to apply for grants, fewer steps? I think we can be more of a partner, more of an economic driver in, in that process. And Sean, what's your third uh, main leg of that economic plan? So there are, there are a few more. One is okay. investment, investing in businesses of all sizes. So when we look at small businesses, encouraging that entrepreneurial spirit that we we uh we were, were once known for pratt and whitney i mentioned where i worked and where my yeah. family worked was once a small business now rose to global prominence of course but through through grants and through uh through loans but also through incubators and uh, most businesses fail within their first year but when they're supported by incubators uh, they have a much higher success rate so having key incubators throughout the state so now connecticut has supported incubators we have in new haven we have science park we have uh, 300 george street we're starting a new place called district in Fairhaven. is it not happening or not happening enough is there not, money you can identify that can make it happen more would you bond for it how would it work it would be not enough uh and and really making it happen through some state contributed equity but also through partnerships and uh, one of the things we did at, at department of veterans affairs i mentioned our budget went down each year is we still pr provided services, but we were creative. I partnered with nonprofit organizations to bring more case support management to bear for our veterans. I partnered you still had to pay them, though, right? The nonprofits to do that case management. Some, some, but we we found ways to be to be more. Is that because they're not unionized? So you don't have to pay the workers as much. Like, where do the savings come? Well, we didn't we didn't have uh, enough case support management to begin with, so we were, we were bringing more to uh, more to bear. We had social workers that worked uh, for the department, but not the case support manage managers mm. that could help more quickly identify goals and objectives. Oh, I see. So you got agencies that do case support management, follow the veterans through years out, but where did you find money to pay those not for profits while you were cutting your budget? Through through other means, as as a Department of Veterans Affairs, we did take in some revenue. Uh, for our temporary housing facility, as well as uh -huh. as well as through our our long term care chronic disease healthcare center, uh, revenue that does not necessarily go directly into into the general fund, uh, and so we had some some flexibility there to do that. But was also, that money there before? Did you increase the amount of revenue you got in? There there was revenue that was already coming in. We did change the uh, and modify the program fee to modernize that as well. The program fee uh, had been uh, stagnant for about. Uh, oh, eight nine years and we modernized it to be more of an income-based approach for those veterans who, uh, who who chose to stay on longer at the time in other words if you could afford you pay exactly exactly uh, so small businesses one but lo also looking at the businesses that we already have small and medium-sized businesses that already exist and helping them to scale up you know we heard a couple of weeks ago that we didn't make the amazon list and i say forget about amazon let's focus on the six thousand technology firms that we already have here in connecticut help them scale up 10 jobs each is sixty thousand jobs and then the larger employers. So, how well. would you help them do that? Well, I do it through a pr provider networks, um, and and what I mean by that is, you know, companies of certain sizes, you know, get to a point where the head of the company is doing the financial role, but it's too big now for the for the head of the company to do the finances anymore, but not big enough to hire their own, you know, CFO. And so, provider networks in place to help coverage those cover those uh, those gaps. So, in other words, you would have DECD have someone on staff focusing, identifying and focusing on medium-sized businesses looking to grow and seeing what they need to supplement the uh, 
to get to that next stage. They wouldn't be they wouldn't be the the pro- providing network themselves, but they potentially could be helped. Steer people. So what would be the bring, providing? What it would be the providing network? It would be bringing networks uh, of the folk, way you did with together. the uh, with the um, case management. Absolutely. Defense. And and on the on the DECD front, we also need to uh, build relationships with uh, chambers of commerce around the state, and so that we're not just so we know what's happening on the ground. We're not waiting till Intel. Right, Intel basically, and also building those efficiencies and those relationships. Can you tell me a little more about provider networks for helping them grow? I, I really can't see a provider network in my mind. What is a provider network? Mm-hmm. So, so you could have several companies who are looking to grow, but again, they're in a position where they don't have enough capital to uh, to risk hiring a their own d- director of human resources or their own uh, chief financial officer, and so they can share some some uh, some of the providers among them. Oh, in other words, you get a bunch of the companies to share the cost of one um, financial manager, one CFO or something. Yeah, that, that could be a piece of it where the, where the companies themselves are putting forth some of the costs. That's actually I could use in my own company, yeah, because I actually need a financial <laughs> Yeah, yeah can't yeah. afford one. That's but, an interesting uh, idea. I also want to... Uh, so networks meaning getting uh, medium-sized growing businesses to share some of the costs that for businesses they can't, might not be able to afford on their own to grow. Right. And your government role will be identify who's there and steer people to that. Being really being that that driver, being that partner—that's interesting. Yeah, bring, yes. Bringing people, bringing people together. You know, we, we have to. Uh, I often talk about it as I travel the state that we are one Connecticut. There's too many, you know, separate solutions. There's too many. There's a there's a city solution. There's a town solution. There's a business solution. There's a labor solution. We got to have one Connecticut solution that we, as as the governor, being the cheerleader, being the coach, bringing people together to move our state forward as a state you know, when it comes to a stronger economy. And one key piece to that is the transportation and infrastructure, uh, critical component to my economic plan for a few reasons. One is safety. You know, we're rated uh, the top when it comes to poor roads, worst roads and bridges in the, in the country. Uh, really? And, and, like worse than like Georgia and, uh, yeah, yeah. And they Mississippi? can, they contribute. Mississippi has safer roads and bridges than we do. Yeah. The report that I read has us at, at the wow. very, at the very top of, of worse roads. And, and, and what that does is from a safety standpoint, it contributes to uh, over half of the fatal accidents here, wow. here, here in Connecticut from an economic standpoint, same thing. Companies want to see predictability, stability before they're going to start a company, before they're going to grow a company. So that's been, the, that's been a big problem infrastructure. Dan P. Malloy said transportation safety, uh, I mean, the transportation fund needed a billion dollars. He didn't get the support to do that. Now he's saying, Raise the gas tax seven cents. Do a three dollar tire tax. Do highway tolls to pay for it. What's your idea? How are you going to pay for it? Well, my first idea is tolls. That I've supported tolls since earlier, uh, early on in my campaign, and that means well, currently you and I are subsidizing people coming through our state. You know, we're paying for it. They're not. They're bringing people products through our state. Uh, so we need to. We're disproportionately affected now. We need to spread that out. Spread spread that wealth out among those who are traveling through our state. So yes, tolls, smart tolls that are placed. Uh, uh, with electronic tolls around the state, not the booth, and uh, also can be tiered pricing so that you and I, the residents of Connecticut, are not disproportionately affected. Tax credits potentially as well if we need to. I would pair that with a tax, a gas tax reduction. Uh, the gas tax is, is, is old. It's outdated. It's not the, bringing in the revenue that it once thought it was, given you know, more efficient cars, electric cars. And so we have to move toward that as well because I've talked to too many truck drivers included whose companies say don't stop in Connecticut because the gas is too high. So we're not getting them paid tolls. They're not paying for tax. They're not stopping for a coffee or sandwich. They're just blowing right through. We need to provide viable options for those uh, economic drivers around the state, viable, uh, viable options to move people, products, and ideas. And that includes rails. That includes 
even high-speed internet around the state so that businesses have that. Uh, so how that would, so for the transportation in addition to tolls, is that the one way you would raise money to support that? Do you have other thoughts? No, that would not be enough. Uh, we'd have to do more. And, and the other uh, item that I've called for is the Connecticut Infrastructure Bank. And that uh, is on the on the idea of, of the Connecticut Green Bank. And it would be leveraging... But you want to let them rate it the way they did the Green Bank last year? No. <laughs> no. But it's leveraging state-contributed equity with private capital debt to bring more resources to bear more quickly. So what does that mean? The state says we're putting up some money, right. but then we're going to use that to borrow more money in the private sector? Right, right. And how do we pay that money back? Through revenue-generating uh, projects like tolls, like railways. Uh, and so it's- Always oh, it, use that money to, let's say, increase your online e-service, then dedicate some of the revenues from the tickets to pay back the debt? Sure. Yep. Re- revenues from tolls that are coming in, revenues from rails that are coming in. And what that does also is, you know, allow us to keep them as state-owned assets. So we're not turning the assets over to, to hedge funds or to, or to venture capitalists. It's state-owned assets, but bringing in private capital debt to get those. Th- and, and the third component is, is the thousands of jobs. You know, we're leaving thousands of jobs on the table in the form of construction jobs, good union jobs, trades jobs, because we can't get our projects out the door and on the street in a timely way. Well, how's that going to work out now with the Trump administration's idea for infrastructure? Uh, you know, the fans of the project say that's going to help get a lot of those jobs, leverage a lot of private capital because he's seeing a four-to-one match, private to public. Other people say because, I don't know if you saw a story in the Times yesterday, that the criteria is going to be what kind of infrastructure projects benefit a private entity so they're there for their invest. So therefore, a private road to a condominium complex might get funded, but not a broken bridge in Putnam. Right. If there are any Putnam, were there any bridges in Putnam? Yes, there are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were up there. I wasn't. Yeah. So yeah, I was yeah. Second. Um, and in, so, fact, in fact, it's a beautiful bridge where they have the veterans' flags going across. There it you go. In, There's in always Putnam. a veterans' connection. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but so seriously, what are, union construction jobs through um, transportation infrastructure projects? How are you going to get the money for that through the infrastructure bank or other ideas? Through both of those, through the tolls and through the uh, Connecticut Infrastructure Bank, and and those jobs are, are key. I've I've been on a jobs tour and I visited the local 478, the operating engineers training facility where they train uh, apprentice and it's, it's called the, the other four year degree. Cause it's a four year apprentice program and you can earn while you learn and, and they change live their lives there. They improve lives there. And so getting those jobs is going to be, uh, going to be critical because they're not just jobs, they're careers. They're good, good paying jobs with, uh, with good benefits, but yes, doing that through the, through the tolls and also through the Connecticut infrastructure bank that we should, we should, we should have that going yesterday, uh, right. so that we can get that, that those funding is, we're not going to be able to rely on on the uh, on the Trump administration, we're going to have to solve this problem uh, for ourselves. Given what it looks like to be not a lot of federal uh, support, uh, and the idea is to to privatize a lot of these these things. I think with the Connecticut Infrastructure Bank, we keep them state owned, but we bring in that private capital to uh, to get them launched. Mm-hmm. All right, and you're listening to Sean Colley, who's launched his own campaign for governor as a Democrat in Connecticut. He's here on Dateline New Haven and WNHH 103.5 FM. Live streamed at newhavenpen.org. So Jonathan Rivera wasn't just saying welcome. He had a question. Sure. The Latino population has grown more than 50% in Connecticut, as we all know. Where does he stand on supporting Latino not-for-profits and supporting immigrant families? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, I come from uh, an immigrant family. I'm the grandson and son of, uh, of Irish immigrants. Uh, my, my grandparents came uh, beginning in 1928 and got jobs in the 1940s at Pratt Whitney. First, my grandfather as a groundskeeper and my grandmother in the factory. My grand, my, fa- my own father came 52 years ago this past January, on January the 6th, uh, in search of uh, opportunity as well, and he ended up coming to the Hartford area. Oh, so you're talking about your mother's side with the grand, the first Yes, grand. correct, yeah. But both from Ireland. 
Both from Ireland. So did your parents yeah. meet at some kind of like Irish uh, at a wedding, actually. Yeah. So an Irish wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my father was able to get here within a couple of days. Had a job in the Hartford area, and within two years, he bought and operated his own small landscaping business. So that's what he did uh, for for his his life. And for me, that meant me cutting a lot of grass over the summertime and shoveling a lot of snow. So. Um, but absolutely, uh, you know, we're, we are a nation, um, we're a nation of immigrants and, uh, I've been on my jobs tour and I've met a, a good number of immigrants. I was out in Danbury uh, and met Wilson Hernandez just the other day from Ecuador who has his own restaurant. Um, you know, uh, I was out in Frazel Tool in Newington where I met the sons of immigrants like me from Italy who started that, started that business. So immigrants are, are, are critical, uh, to, to our state, to our nation, to uh, uh, who, the fabric of who we are, and also our economy. You know, from a, from a business standpoint, we have over seventy thousand Connecticut residents he, here in Connecticut that are working for immigrant-owned businesses, mm. and and so uh, you know, absolutely a critical part of of who we so are. So, would you continue the uh, Malloy administration of uh, not cooperating secure committee communities program, the federal program? When you have a nonviolent person who's not in jail but have been detained sharing information on that, would you continue sanctuary policies that are in the crosshairs of the Trump administration? You know, I, th- I think people have different ideas of what sanctuary is defined as. But right, I would, it's a term of art versus a Yes, yeah, so I will say that, you know, I'll, I'll be clear that, uh, you know, I would not ask our state, city, local resources to, to do the job of, of the federal government. Meaning that you're not going to cooperate. So will you then, if the Trump administration says we're going to add Connecticut to this list of communities we're going to withhold federal money for from unless you can prove that you're cooperating more where are you going to stand uh, i'm going to say number one we're not going to do the job of the federal government and and, okay. and number two we, we don't have the resources to do to do more than what we're going we have to fight for a policy at the federal level that really makes sense of of our immigration policy mm-hmm. and that treats people with dignity and respect and that frankly considers the business case Look at the investments that we've made in young people. Uh, you know, those who are DACA eligible young people, we've made investments in them, in their education, and they're contributing back to, uh, to society. You know, they pay $33 million in taxes per year uh, here in Connecticut. Uh, so, and you're talking about the so-called dreamers. They were born here um, or born to um, people came to the country without permission. Right, right. They right. were up at a hearing. Some of them, Wilbercross High School, a bunch of dreamers who attend our high school here went up to a state hearing yesterday at the Capitol. Um, in favor of a bill that would allow students at state universities and colleges to withdraw a financial aid fund that all students pay into as part of you pay a fee when you go to college for financial aid people. But then if you're an undocumented immigrant, you can't take from that. They want to change the rule. Where's your stand on that? Yeah, I think I, I'd certainly want to read, read it more and, and study it more. I haven't uh, had a chance to do that. Uh, but Obviously, as I just mentioned, you know, they're part of our, our, the fabric of our economy, of our society, and we've got to find ways to continue to, to uh, integrate, uh, integrate them and, and, and really come up with the path for them to be full-fledged uh, members of our society. And Sean Connolly, are you going to be running with public financing? Are you going to look to qualify for the citizen election program? I am. I am. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not independently wealthy. Obviously, I've been lucky with the opportunities that I've had growing up uh, here in, in Connecticut, attending college, attending law school, and, and having some uh, good jobs, both on active duty and, and outside. Um, but no, I think it makes sense to, to bring, the, bring the people together, bring the public together, uh, and really uh, go after qualifying for that. All right. And uh, any, some concerns, like yesterday, Oz Griebel, he's another candidate, said, well, I like clean elections, but I don't like the idea of public money going into 
paying for people's elections with those matching funds. If he says we can't afford it, what's your take on that? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, we've got to find the way to do that, you know, because we, the whole idea behind the citizens election fund is to keep them clean, is to keep the dollar amounts small and keep them, uh, Really coming and enable from, other kinds of people to run. Exactly. Coming from the individual, not coming from big money. Now, you so, are running against some big money people. you got a few candidates on Democrat and Republican side who are self-financing their campaign. These are business people, usually from uh, Fairfield County. There's one from Madison who say, well, I've been in the private sector. I know how to run things. I know how to better do it than the government people do. They haven't been in government. Any thoughts on that? How would you respond to that as a candidate saying, we've made things work in the private sector, public sector is broken, and we can run it better? Well, I think it's it's key to remember where I started, and that's the, the three tiers of experience yeah. that I bring. I bring some private sector experience as well as the the government experience. You know, mil- army is 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 government experience. Uh, it's a little different, but uh, I bring that army. I bring the corporate, and I bring running a state agency efficiently. By the way, with less and less resources. Mm-hmm. Sean Conley, why are Democrats in a fix? I mean, the uh, yeah, the Democrats elect Congress people unanimously in Connecticut, but we've out of seven last state elections for governor. Five have not been Democrats, have been Democrats, have been Republicans, and Republicans turned independent. The legislature now is purple. The Senate's tied. The Democratic uh, lead in the majority in the House is greatly evaporating with, with a few people have already turned to vote with the Republicans to pass their version of the budget the last term. Why is this happening? What does it mean? What's going on in our state? Mm. Well, I, I can tell you uh, I've been a Democrat my, my whole life, and really it comes down to I've always believed the Democratic Party was the party of opportunity. Uh, and that's what my whole campaign is based on, ensuring and expanding the Connecticut opportunity for everyone, no matter who you are. Uh, so that's that's why I'm a Democrat. I think going forward, you're, you're absolutely right. It's going to be it's going to be a tough election. And as Democrats and as as people vying for a political office, uh, I like to talk about leadership, putting service over politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to be leaders. We have to be the humble leaders. You know, face it with humility, face it with collaboration. Uh, sitting across the table from 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 folks, no matter who you are, uh, really uh, going after it 110 percent when it comes to a communication perspective, uh, talking to the, the the people of Connecticut, but also talking to the people who we're going to be working with to get things done. It's enough finger pointing. You know, we uh, I, I talk about the dam. The dam is leaking, and and we can sit around and we can continue to point fingers. We continue to, to lay blame. I'm going to let others waste their time doing that. I'm going to focus on taking responsibility. For the future one uh, way the dam is leaking is our pension obligations a lot of people have been retired a long time and not and i don't pretend to be an expert on how you fix it denise napier the treasurer and this and the governor are disagreeing about how you spread out those payments and what's the best way to do it any thoughts on how we uh stop that dam from not just leaking but breaking well, I think uh, some progress has been made. Obviously, uh, it's it's a complicated uh, it's complicated in the way the uh, state employees have been set up. There are four different tiers of employee of, right. of, of of state employees. The first tier would be what people perceive as the most lucrative, and, and that goes back uh, decades of, of those who retire at you know at an age where they're collecting. You know, some are decent, some are not as decent. You know, it depends on what job you had, uh, but they were the most lucrative when it comes to pensions and insurance. We're now at tier four, uh, and tier four has gotten much less lu- lucrative over the years when you went down from two to three to four. Uh, so now just recently, state employees came to the table and, and have added the number added to the number of years before they can retire to eligibility, added uh, or broadened the calculation when it comes to not the, just the top three last three years anymore, but really uh, calculating your pension based on your uh, your entire career, more 401k style of uh, of pensions. And so 
those are the types of fixes that going forward are, are going to be helpful when it comes to our state workforces. We've got to, we've got to work on continuing to pay the commitments that we've, we've, we've made to those, particularly those who are, are already retired. Um, it's going to, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a tough. Do you have any specific ideas? Like, do you stay with Napier about not stretching about the way that, uh, Aloy's suggesting to avoid the balloon payments? Where would the money come from? I mean, these are hard questions. Do you have any specifics on how you can deal with it? Gen- I would say first, generally that we need to, we need to as quickly as we can fund the pensions to the level that they needed to be, that they need to be uh, funded at. But we're going to have to look at across state government. Obviously, our dollars are limited. We're going to have to look across state government. And I'm a collaborative results-driven leader, so we're going to have to identify areas where our core functions truly are. And if we have to change the way we operate government uh, and core functions that are not as as core as other uh, core functions are, we're going to have to find ways to... uh, Corey Marie Evasick. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, Corey. What writes in her Facebook? Welcome to New Haven. Two exclamation points. Mazel tov. Uh, so excited to see you in the Elm City. That's for Sean Connolly who's here. He's running for governor as a Democrat. He's here on Dateline New Haven, WNHH, 103.5 FM live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. You made a statement in passing, forget about Amazon. You talk about the need to boost smaller and growing businesses in Connecticut as opposed to focusing on the larger business. I want to press you a little bit on that. Would you do the program the state has now to identify the five biggest employers to give state aid to try to keep them here, such as when we brought Alexi on to come from Chester, New Haven, and then they took our money and then uh, 13 months later decided to go to Boston. Would you do away with that program? Would you have, would you, would you have competed to get the Amazon headquarters here? You know, I, I don't think I would. I, I think I, we need to focus. We, we have to have a comprehensive strategy, and, and, and sometimes it feels like pinging here and pinging there. We've got to have a comprehensive strategy that, that puts in a, a plan for, for, for modern and competitive infrastructure so that businesses overall see that predictability. We've got to get our budget in, go, going well, Why on. would you have not competed for the Amazon? Because right now that would be spending our resources in a, in a way that we in the terms of the tax breaks they're going to get from people. Well, Is that what be, you mean? It, it could be it could be any anything we're going to spend any time or money that we would spend uh, on trying to attract Amazon here would be really pinging directly at Amazon, and it wouldn't be focusing on the overall structure of having an environment where we don't have to even go after them because they're they're just going to come. There was uh, a, there was an article on the front page of the Times a week ago that said that. This Amazon sweepstake marked a turning back in economic development philosophy and governments across the country. That in the last 10 or 20 years, it had become an article of faith that when communities compete each other to land a big employer, they end up having to pay so much in tax breaks, tax forgiveness, aid, loans, that in fact they lose money on the deal. And that, this, and that no one's better than Amazon in getting suppliers in a race to the bottom. And that if you read that article, you kind of feel like, Anyone who didn't get Amazon is lucky. Is that where you're coming from on this? I'm, I'm coming from uh, the standpoint that we have to have a long-term broad strategy on building an environment here in Connecticut where businesses can flourish and want to come to flourish. So is it more important to have good schools and safe streets and roads, that uh, bridges that don't collapse so that private investors will come in one by one and gradually build businesses as opposed to luring someone who could invest a lot of money and jumpstart an economy with a lot of jobs. All, all those things, because and, and having it not just to come and grow the jobs here organically, but at a point, Amazon would say, hey, I want to be in Connecticut. What can I do to get in Connecticut? Not what you can pay me, but what can I do to get into Connecticut? And, right. and it's really having that, uh, that's what leadership is all about. It's building a long-term plan, building a strategy, building an, uh, an infrastructure and an environment where it's going to be strong for flourishes. Be- 
for businesses to flourish. Because what does it mean at the end of the day? It really means more and better paying jobs for the people of Connecticut. Uh, and people in Connecticut are still struggling. I found that when I traveled as commissioner. I found it when I've been traveling as, as a candidate. So we've got to have more and better paying jobs. And we've also got to find the way to have the pipeline in place to connect our people with the good paying jobs. And Cora Marie d- did have a question as well. Please talk about trying to retain the greatness that once was Connecticut and stop the hemorrhaging business and residents. We've kind of been talking about that right now. Yeah, I think so. But but it brings up a key point in that. I think I, maybe I mentioned it earlier about being the cheerleader, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being a cheerleader for all the great things that we do have in here in Connecticut, we've got, we've got a talented and educated, uh, workforce. We've got some, uh, great spots around the, uh, around the state that we need to leverage with universities, even here, particularly here in, uh, in New Haven. Uh, and that brings up the point of tourism, which is in my economic plan as well. And that's a, that's a, another key part in that. Tell me about that. We're, we're leaving money on the table when it comes to revenue for, for, for tourism. Right now, we're, we're investing about $6 million as a state in promoting tourism here in Connecticut. It used to be about $15 million a few years ago. And that's not even enough because what research shows is that for every dollar we spend as a state, we get $3 back in return. And that's Aren't on, those studies usually done by the hospitality industry? Well, that's a conservative f- estimate. Okay. Other, others have estimates of up to 6 or $7. Okay. Um, and so... That's just on the hotel tax standpoint. It's and, and the research is clear because our, our money's gone down over the last few years. The the investments that we've made and so since the height of when Jody Rowe was saying staycation in Connecticut. Uh, although I don't think I don't think under that administration they were spending all, all that money. So the money wasn't the where governor, the commercial the governor was. actually uh, did did an uptick initially uh, uh, in in tourism. So and, you would boost the tourism? Would that be through our regional tourism entities? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, so how much do you want to spend on it, and where would the money come from? I would say up to up to twenty plus million dollars, and because uh, because we're leaving fifty plus million dollars in revenue on the table, um, mm. and, and 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 maybe that sounds like a drop in the bucket when it comes to our overall state budget. But Is that, that that's state revenue on the table or general yeah. money in the economy? No, no, that's 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 state revenue through ho- hotel tax uh, revenue in, in particular, and that doesn't even include all the other peripherals. Uh, growth that could happen when it comes to you know mm-hmm. jo- jobs at the local at the shoreline or jobs you know in the hills and Litchfield right area. right because so, because those studies then talk about the uh, multiplier effect with private economy exactly exactly and that's part of the cheerleading piece and talking about what connecticut's all about and inviting people here many people who come to connecticut where would you get the 20 million we'd we'd find it we'd find it through being more efficient in our other state agencies and again it's it's not just throwing out 25 million it's investment to get money back very quickly. No, I understand the argument for spending the money. Yeah. But right now, Hartford, they feel there is no money. That's why that, they keep squeezing the tourism agencies. Would it be a dedicated stream or you would just find it from somewhere else in the general budget? It, we would we would look to put it in a, in a dedicated format. No, no, I mean where it would come from. Like you wouldn't raise the hotel tax or you think that would discourage the tourism? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't raise the hotel tax. We would have to find it uh, from across state government. Okay, if I'm also just do a lightning round here, and it's been really nice to meet you, Sean Kylie, hear about your life and yeah, hear about your great parents' meeting. What was that wedding they met at? It was at the wedding of uh, my father's cousin, actually, another uh, another gentleman from uh, from Ireland as well. So they met at that wedding, and I think they got married less themselves less than a year later. Wow! <laughs> so where was the wedding? It was I, I, it was in the Hartford area. I, I don't know. Or was exactly. it like an Iberian Hall or something? Or was probably it? the Irish Club. The Irish <laughs> <laughs> American Home Society, which used to be uh, in Hartford, I believe. Not now; it's in well, one is in Glastonbury. All right. So, uh, quickly, public financing. You said you're in favor of single payer health insurance. 
Um, and I think we certainly have to look at how we how we treat healthcare. Um, one of the ways that we do that is more and better paying jobs, jobs with good pay, but with good benefits as well. For those who cannot be covered by that, we certainly have to find ways to, uh, you know, continue Connecticut Access Health, uh, you know, options with Medicaid. But healthcare is a huge, huge issue. I'll tell you that I told you my father was a small business owner and uh, growing up there were there were years, there were multiple years where our family didn't have uh, healthcare insurance. You know, my parents had risked it. We, we paid cash for, uh, for. Did they tell for, you can't play for, baseball for a year because we can't afford <laughs> to get hurt to get the insurance? Well, it was much cheaper to play sports back then as well than it is with uh, with our two boys. But 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 seriously, uh, it's it's an important issue and we need for a strong economy. We need healthy people. So would you go the single payer route? I don't know. I, 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 that's not going to be a, a a priority in to go single payer in the first. Uh, Vermont couple tried years. it; it didn't kind of work on their own. I wonder whether there could be a compact of blue states, like red. The red states cut Medicaid and do it the way they're doing because you need scale. Vermont right, found right. out you can't do single payer on your own. Right, right. And and obviously there's uh, there's uh, experiences to look at uh, in Massachusetts, but. Uh, um, well, that's Obamacare when it was Romney Care before Romney ran for president. Right, and said he was right. against it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, absolutely, we've got to look for ways to uh, to to make sure that uh, the people of Connecticut uh, have the health care they need. Um, but we also have to keep in mind where we are with our, our state's uh, budget. Legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. Yeah, I've said I'm I'm open to that. But being a, a collaborative results-driven leader, I just want to see what the data is you know, going to show. We have to have it all out. Yes, there could be uh, estimated revenue, so let's see what they're going to be. But we also have to see what the costs are going to be as well from a physical and, and mental health standpoint, from how are we going to implement uh, from a law enforcement perspective, driving under the influence. So there are costs. Uh, we just got to keep those in mind. And, and, and there is debating views on, on, on whether it's a pathway and those kinds of things. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly open to it. We just need to have that conversation in a transparent yeah, Some people area. say that helps with the opioid crisis, that fewer people go to the opioids. Other people say that um, there's dangers in the non-smokable products where people eat it and, don't, and they get sick, the kids get them, and they don't know, everybody doesn't know how much they've eaten this fast, they go to the hospital. It's kind of an yeah. interesting realm. And, but, and there's also, you know, even in Colorado, obviously, where, where they have it, uh, you know, there's, I, I believe there's been an uptick uh, in, in, in accidents. Traffic, yeah. Um, and, and we don't, I, I don't know what, if that's the cause or not. Okay. But uh, Raising the marginal rates on income tax for people who earn over a million dollars a year from 6.99% to 7.5%. At this point, I say no... I've said we can't tax our way out of the current economic crisis that we're in. I've called it a crisis. And so we've got to find uh, other ways to grow our economy, to, to jumpstart uh, and launch Connecticut forward. All right. Well, Sean Connolly, it's been a real pleasure to, to meet you. Great to be with you, Paul. You Thanks so say. much. Yeah, I appreciate you well, having me in. Uh, great to be in New Haven. And I learned a little bit about the eastern side of the state. There you go. There you go. I'm the only candidate, actually, from, uh, from eastern Connecticut. Why um, is that, do you think? Is that kind of like an atrophying part of the state, or what's the deal? No, I, I think uh, I think as a party in, in the Democrats, we've got to focus on the entire state. I've said before, it's not just a, not just a town or city solution. We've got to really look at one Connecticut. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today in Dateline New Haven at WNHH. Thanks to Democratic gubernatorial candidate Sean Connolly. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now, we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.